Hey there, this is Shiloh. And this is David. And you are listening to... Who in the World Podcast. Wow, who in the world? Dave, good to see you again. How are you? Man, I'm doing okay. How are you doing over there, Shiloh, in beautiful New York? Beautiful New York. Yes, it is. Uh, how's the weather been out in Texas? It's been beautiful in New York. It's that fall weather. Uh, yeah, it's been freezing cold here, or as we call it, 85. So, yes. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. Well, <laughs> uh, I've been checking the weather over there, 90s and 85. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm, I'm a little jealous, but hey, it's nice over here. So, Dave, who are we talking about? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Who in the world are we talking about, Shiloh? Oh, man. We, I've got a, a big one for you today, Dave. I've got a story for you. You know, it's actually the story of, of a man who saw something wrong. It's a man who wanted to stand up for what was right, Dave. So, sound interesting? Yeah, it sounds like those signs on the uh, subway. You know, if you say something, if you <laughs> say some, something, see something. That's, yeah. you or no, what? if you see something, say something. If, Do you they say, take if, you, if you say something, then see something. That's exactly right, Dave. <laughs> so this is, the, this is a story that really we can all identify with. It's, it's something that in our modern times, we can say that we, we can feel maybe the same way that this person felt. But it was long enough ago that it really shows you the same issues that are affecting people today have been around for a long time, really. It, it's striking to think that what we're going to talk about today happened 500 years ago, but it still affects us. So we're going to take a journey back, Dave, to the year 1521, and let's go to Europe. You ready to go to 1521 Europe, Dave? Man, definitely. I mean, in 1521 Europe, it was probably a wonderful place to live. Like, what kind of stuff was going on there at the time? Well, Dave, it's funny you should ask, you know, what was going on in Europe at this time? In fact, let's just kind of get a, a, a landscape, a scenery uh, of what was happening for the last, you know, 100, 150 years in Europe, starting with the 1350s when the bubonic plague was killing everyone. That was not a good oh, time. Yeah. What not was, a good time. What was yeah. the other name for the bubonic plague, Dave? I, I think they call it the Black death yeah correct? yeah uh, extra points if you can get the um latin name oh well yeah oh man you had to throw latin at me <laughs> hey dave uh just a quick just a quick note for all our listeners how many times have you told me how many years of latin you had in school you know whenever you ask somebody how many years did you take of latin it's always the same answer too many okay well we'll just let anyone listening to uh to go google that right now uh but i will say pestis was in the name and i'm not talking about that stuff okay. you put on your um your sandwiches okay so the famous <laughs> european okay going back to it the 1350s is when the bubonic plague is is uh raging it's really it's it's affecting europe we could say that it's really at a peak at this point but now the famous european renaissance starts a little bit after that. We're talking around the early 1400s. We start to see, um, you know, the Renaissance starting and affecting people. At the same time, in the late 1400s, just before the time that we're going to pick up with in the 1500s, North and South America are being explored. So the, there's some really big historical things happening. There's some events, some movements that are changing the way people think. You know, we could say that people were suffering and they wanted change. In fact, one of the most powerful and oppressive organizations at the time was the Catholic Church. And not only was the Catholic Church taking advantage of people in Europe, but now, you know, right before the 1500s, they're exploiting the people in the Americas, too. So the religious leaders at the time, they couldn't stop corruption. They couldn't stop the Black Death. They weren't able to protect the people. They couldn't protect themselves. So the thought at the time was this powerful organization, the Catholic Church, People were questioning their power, their holiness. They weren't able to stop this disease. They, were, they saw them exploiting other, other people. And then the Renaissance, like we talked about, was happening. It was a time of examining the Greeks and the Romans. The Renaissance is when people were looking to other sources of information, not in the Bible. They decided that they wanted to explore stuff outside the Bible and, and think of different ways of looking at things. So that's the, the Renaissance that we're, you know, many people talk about. So the Hundred Years' War between France and England was raging all the way into the 1453. And this is a time when we hear like the famous figure Joan of Arc was popular. People were looking for hope and answers. So Dave, sounds kind of familiar to our time. You could say people today are kind of in the same situation. They kind of feel like They've been taking advantage of, they're looking for hope, they're looking for something. That's the backdrop 
of us heading into Europe to meet a knight, Dave. Okay. Do you like? I like it. Do you like knights? Everybody likes knights. Oh, everybody likes that, right? What 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 great story with, from the with 15th? a with a K? Just just to be clear, with a K, right? Right, right. Okay, <laughs> exactly. So, right, wouldn't you say, Dave, that uh, no great story from Europe in the 1500s would be complete without a knight that that's like valiant, fighting for what's right? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, let's let's go there. So, yeah, tell us about this knight, Shadow. <laughs> so, how about a knight hiding in in Germany, modern day Germany? It wasn't Germany at the time, but he's a knight in hiding in a castle. Actually, the castle's name was Wartburg Castle. So the and, night- and you know, we should back up right there because I mean, that's a pretty historic castle. Like there was some other stuff that happened there too. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was where the famous princess was uh, in the last level of Super Mario Brothers when you had to defeat Bowser. You know what, Dave? That came a little later, but you are right. Yes, the Wartburg <laughs> Castle was where actually Bowser took Princess Peach. Yeah, that's right. And what was the secret for beating that level? Do you remember? You know, the secret for beating um, that level was don't get killed by the Hammer Brother right before <laughs> Bowser. And then um, make sure that if you had like if if you had big or if you had firepower, just run right through him. And you'll get that second. Oh, yeah. Of in, yeah. Just you'll get the in second of invincibility and just and then it just looks a little funny because you're small standing next to the princess. But I'm not I'm not against that. You know, I'm all for yeah. it. <laughs> You know, height differences in relationships. I don't mind that. At any rate. Um, any- so the unfortunately named Wartburg Castle. So what happens next? Well, I just feel bad because anyone listening to this that's not uh, 35 and older might not get anything that we just said. Yeah, but we're, anyways. You know. So we're, we're talking about the original NES uh, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, in the Wartburg Castle. Right. Exactly. I yeah, wish I really wish the episode was about Mario now. Thanks, Dave. OK, so. Yeah. Uh, now this knight that we're talking about, we're going to call him George. We'll say he's knight George. He fought bravely. He wanted to do what was right. He was, he was a decent guy, Uh, but despite all his noble causes that he was fighting for, he was outnumbered. He had to flee for his life. So thankfully this knight had some powerful friends and just when his enemies were about to close in and finally put an end to our brave knight, he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped and taken to this castle. Now, obviously, it was no ordinary kidnapping, Dave. How does an ordinary kidnapping go, Dave? Man, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I just thought I'd ask you. So, <laughs> you know what? It was no ordinary kidnapping. It was a rescue mission disguised as a kidnapping by the knight's friends. So, they they kidnapped our knight to make it look like he'd been captured and he was going to be ransomed, maybe even murdered. But all this was done to throw off his enemies that were chasing yeah, him. Yeah, so it was a, it was an inside job. It was an inside job, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. So, so they pulled up in their van, they had the sack, I, they put it over his head. I was about to say, you know, I was about to make a reference to a bunch of Mini Coopers pulling off a job, but I'm like... <laughs> Again, I'm showing my age. So Only people who are 35 or older would get that joke, which... I, maybe that's our demographic podcast probably not no. so what does a knight do dave what does a knight do when he's in hiding in a castle in wartburg castle well everything i think of as a knight doing you wouldn't do in a castle you know i think like riding a horse you know right. you got your armor on your jab yeah. i mean that's he'd probably feel kind of like the way we are during covid you know he's stuck inside yeah yeah exactly so you're right a fire burned inside this night he wanted to go out and fight for what's right he fight against corruption but he had to it was just too dangerous he had to stay in there to stay alive because it was better for the cause that he was fighting for so our brave knight he disguises himself he grows out his hair and he grows out his beard he'd sneak out like to... people stuck at home during covid exactly you know what i'm seeing some parallels here to our night i didn't think about maybe that. gained a little weight armor doesn't fit anymore yeah uh, started making started eating a little more sourdough bread i mean he is in germany he's probably some really good yeah, sourdough bread. true yeah. Maybe uh, some beer, maybe some cheese. Well, you know what? Okay, now that you mentioned that, he would go out at night to the local taverns and he'd talk to people in the nearby city about local events. He wanted to know how people felt about the things that they were seeing you know, at this time. So our night, our night, George, he stays busy, though. He spends about 10 months in this castle as a secret guest. And during his time there, he's able to produce some profound writings. And one of his literary focuses helps shape and help really solidify the common German language. So pretty big thing he does while in hiding in this castle. Well, let's take some time to talk about how this knight influenced the German language. I'm just going to go off on a tangent here, Dave. 
You know, when you think about language... Wait, uh, is this a footnote of history? Yeah, we're going to a footnote of history. Footnote okay. of history. <laughs> we're gonna, is it okay to have multiple footnotes of history in a, um, in a thing? I, yeah, you can't. You just have to change the little symbol that you use. Like, the okay. first one's an asterisk, the next the one's next like one's a square. A ha- it, what, yeah. the, what the kids are calling hashtag nowadays. Okay. Yeah, so, it's pound sign. Okay, pound sign. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, if you're over 35, it's a pound sign. Under 35, it's a hashtag. Okay, I'll take it. Um, now, in general, language, uh, the, the people's language, it develops over time. So in many instances, language becomes really solidly established as more of it's written down. It's not always that way, but that's that's a pretty good rule of thumb. And an example of this would be that I, that I really like is what was going on in the Renaissance, um, should I say that more like I'm French? Should I say in the Renaissance or René? Can you say it for me? In French? Uh, Renaissance? In French? I yeah. don't know how to say it. Well, I mean, I think it would be better if you said it like if it was German. They go, the das, just, just, das re- <laughs> change in flag, just, change in how, <laughs> change in lock. Just, okay. just say Renaissance like you're angry. Renaissance. Oh, there you go. Okay. See? So yeah. um, that's how you do a German accent. During the Renaissance, uh, there's examples of um, influential writing, like the one that I wanted to mention and highlight was Dante's Divine Comedy. So Dante writes this work in the 1400s, like we're talking about, uh, just before the time of our, our night. And he has a major influence on the Italian language. And that, along with the Bible, really helps solidify the Italian language. The same idea of religious material, like Dante's Divine Comedy, And the Bible, translations, they help influence languages like Italian, Spanish, English, and other languages, and it's true also of German. So here's the amazing thing. While at the Wartburg Castle, in a matter of months, our knight George translates the Bible, or the Greek uh, portion of the Bible, from Greek and Latin texts into modern, understandable German. So he takes the, the Greek portion of the Bible... And he translates that, that into uh, German, and he's using Greek and Latin manuscripts. So he's doing quite a you know interesting uh, job there while in the castle. You know, he, yeah. I mean, and that really that tells you his grasp of language. I mean, for right. just to read that section of the Bible in that amount of time would be impressive, but to be able to translate it from the ancient texts, I mean, that's that's amazing. Yeah. So our, our knight George, he's quite a scholar, as you mentioned, Dave. Now, at this time, George was one of the most wanted men in the world, though. His enemies included. Now, let's, we're going to go down a, a laundry list of enemies here. He has uh, one of the most powerful political figures of all time, the Holy Roman Emperor, King Charles V. So we have Holy Roman Emperor. That's different from the Catholic Church. So we have a political figure here, King Charles V but also the leader of one of the most powerful religious institutions, of course, the Catholic Church. The Pope is an enemy of of our knight. So when we think about uh, talking about one of the most pivotal times in human history, at this time, the the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, is under King Charles V, while the the Pope, uh, Pope Leo X, was from the family of the Medici, one of the most powerful families of all time, you know, coming from that. Also a coffee shop. Is that a coffee shop? Yeah, in no. Austin. In yeah, Aust- it's, a, okay. it's a fancy coffee shop in Austin. It's good. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm saying that name wrong. In, uh, I, I know that the Italians would say it. Uh, I think it's Medici. I think the accent. Oh, really? Okay. Eat. Yeah, but, uh, it, you know, just anyone that's casually read in history, they go, oh, the Medici, they're very famous for being wealthy businessmen. Well, they were able to actually buy the position of pope you know by their way into being the pope so now you think about all these these powerful personalities they're enemies of our man at this very same time in 1521 that's the the time frame that we're talking about here the new world was being explored and conquered hernan cortez had just conquered the aztecs the holy roman empire and uh, the, the the catholic organization the catholic church were exploiting people in the americas so not, not only was people in Europe being exploited, but people in now North and South America, they were being exploited. And also we see cultures that are mixing with each other. So men- after mentioning all this, you know, there's even other things going on in the East. And this is an area I know you know a lot about, Dave, the Ottoman Empire. What, what, do you, what can you tell us about the Ottoman Empire at this time? Man, absolutely nothing, Shiloh. Oh, you know the Ottoman. You, you're just you, being... you were way you were way off on that one. No, 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 Dave. I know you're you're a man that knows the Ottoman <laughs> Empire. 
I think you're the one who introduced me to them. I think it's like Mattress King. Ottoman Empire is just, you know, they sell Ottomans. <laughs> That was was that a bad that was a bad joke. No, it was not the first, not the last one in this episode. But, <laughs> but yeah, the Ottoman Empire was huge. So I mean, and it lasted until specifically World War One. Right. And if it if it had survived through World War One, it would have been the most probably one of the most powerful you know entities after that because that's where oil was discovered in the Middle East. It would be kind of like if you crammed a bunch of the countries of the Middle East into one empire. You have the Ottoman Empire, but it was divided afterwards because you know they were on the losing side they were part of the axis powers with germany right yeah and so yeah that's a perfect um way to explain their kind of their size they included a massive amount of area well the ottoman empire was very powerful during the 1500s in fact on the same time that we're talking about the 1520s is when we're really this when uh when our knight george is in the castle the 1521 area uh suleiman the magnificent Kind of a name people might have heard of. Suleiman the Magnificent was the the um, sultan of the Ottoman Empire, so or he was the the main figure, the leader of the Ottoman Empire. Now, when you think about all these different personalities, some of them enemies of our knight, some of them not. Uh, who does? It's really hard to think that our knight George would end up being the person that most people would remember who he was and what he did when you compare him with all those other big figures from history. Now, we've been calling him Knight George, but in German, he was known as Junker George. Any, any guesses as to what Junker is, Dave? That is, that's a good, see, like when we think of Junker in English, like I think of, you know, maybe one of our old vehicles you know you might refer to it as a junker but like what's what does junker mean in german well in german junker means knight so we've been calling okay. him knight well, george yeah we've been calling him knight george but, but uh oh, junker george sounds way cooler junker george does sound way cooler i just i just didn't think that most people would every time i said junker would be able to translate that to knight so i just been calling him knight george uh and that's with a k okay yeah so yes. i think junker george <laughs> as opposed like, to daytime george <laughs> Nighttime George, daytime George. He was like, oh, try George PM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Sorry. our man, our our man, Junker George or Night George, you want to take a guess as to who it is, Dave? I'm going to reveal it now just because uh, I know we had talked about revealing it later, but I got a lot of um, early life stuff that I want to tell about him before we, I, and I want to say his name. Oh, well, yeah, you know, Shiloh, I, who in the world are you talking about? <laughs> Dave, we're talking about... The Protestant reformer Martin Luther. <laughs> Mind blown, Shiloh. You know, then why are we calling him Junker George? Because like there is no George in Martin. You know what, Dave? Let's or go, Luther. Like, let's just is it was it was it a fake name? Let's go over it here. We're talking about Martin Luther. He was a hated man by the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. A lot of people know that. He was hunted down and then secretly rescued and hidden in the Wartburg Castle. So while he was in hiding, he named his he renamed himself. He gave himself a, a, the name Junker George. Hence, we use that name Knight George. But he basically impersonated a knight. He grew out his beard. He grew out his hair. He tried to disguise himself. And he did all this to stay alive. And what's interesting is that there were no cameras or phones back then. But he actually had a pretty well-known face there's actually quite a few paintings of him we could say he had a pretty good publicist um so he was pretty recognizable and that's why he actually tried to disguise himself and try and stay hidden so now out of the, all those big name figures that we mentioned martin luther was probably the last person that anyone would expect to do anything so big and so memorable so if you're with me dave you want to look at the yes. life of martin luther Man, I'm ready. Let's 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 go back in time. Okay, so here we go. Now we could spend hours talking about him, but what we want to focus on is just some of the the specific details, some of the facts of his life. We don't want to go too much into the doctrine of what he taught, but some important background information is is that his his father was a hardworking man. He was trying to move up the social ladder, and Luther's father wanted to use Luther to. Um, basically helped the family progress socially and, you know, monetarily. So his father controlled copper mines and copper production in a certain area. He wanted to see young Martin become a, a lawyer. He wanted, him to, he wanted to see him study law so that the family could continually move up this social ladder 
uh, become more prosperous, things like that. So there was a system, some sort of a system of teamwork built around the family. And Luther didn't really want to have, be a part of it. You know, we could say from an early age, Luther had a strong sense of what he thought was right and wrong and what was important and what he just thought was vanity. You know, he didn't see the so, value in that. Yeah. So in other words, he had a strong feeling of what was right and wrong. Yeah. And so he didn't want to become a lawyer. That's what you're saying? You know, um, it's interesting. Yeah. Because at the age of, you know, at that early age, he was exploring <gasps> the things like that. Exactly, Dave. He explored philosophy, explored law. He was interested in them. But he kind of settled on theology. So can I tell you about the famous a story of Luther and the lightning storm? Yeah, and can I just say something that's kind yeah. of interesting about yeah. uh, Luther, about the year he was born? Right, okay. Yeah, so I mean, and I just cheated a little bit. I did a Google, Google search. He was born in 1483. So like when you think about like major things happening like in your lifetime or like when you're a kid. So I, he, he was born before the New World was quote unquote discovered. Right. by columbus right that would have happened like when he was around nine years old right yeah. and then so like most of his life after that was like post you know new world quote right. unquote discovery so i thought that was kind of cool like he kind of spanned two worlds right oh yeah yeah and i mean what he did really we'll talk about that later on but yeah that's a really important point to realize at this time the world's just opening up it's becoming such a bigger place and yet that catholic church has such a, a strong hold on the world that there's a real point of tension a real uh, point that things are going to come to a head and that's what we're going to talk about but at the age of 21 now we've gotten to this point where luther becomes a he's starting to develop his personality he doesn't want to just be kind of used by his father um, for the family name and for promoting you know the family and, and that's not a bad thing but he wants to do something more in the line of theology he starts to realize that that's what he's drawn to he wants to actually focus himself on serving God. So at the age of 21, it, it, there's a lightning storm. Now we're talking in the year 505. So like you said, he was born in uh, 1483. At, in the year 1505, while traveling by horse, a storm develops and a lightning bolt strikes near Luther. So this scares him. It brings out these feelings of fear of death, judgment by the divine. So he makes a vow. He's going to become a monk. It's said there that he, he viewed that vow that he could never break it. So right there, it comes. he comes and tells his father, this is what he's going to do. He's not going to be a tool of the family. Martin Luther says goodbye. And you think about, that couldn't have been easy. He says goodbye to a family system and an, something that he was used to, to go do something new. He's going to become a monk. So, you know, he decides to become an Augustinian friar. And I had to do a little research understanding the different types of monks or the different types of uh, organizations within the Catholic Church, but as an Augustinian friar, his teachings, the teachings of them focused around a life of poverty, preaching, fasting, charity work, helping other people, basically trying to do good to others. So you could see he kind of had a early desire to just do good to other people. So now throughout all this education, Martin Luther, he was intelligent. He was a little upset with what he saw as an Augustinian friar, he noted things in the monastery that were contrary to biblical teachings. We won't go into super uh, deep details, but we see Martin Luther, again, a strong sense of what's just, what's right. He seems to have just wanted to stand up for what he saw was right. Now, continuing all this, uh, Martin Luther eventually goes to Wittenberg, Germany. He becomes, well, before he goes to Wittenberg, I should say, in 1507, he's ordained as a priest. 1507, he's ordained as a priest, but he goes against a lot of the teachings and practices of the Catholic Church. And that's where we're going to pick up. Now he goes to Wittenberg, Germany. You know where Wittenberg, Germany is, Dave? You know what? I, it, no. Wittenberg, uh, I feel, you know, I feel like this is one of those podcasts where you like ask questions like, hey, Dave, you know about this? You're like, no. Hey, Dave, you know about this? No. <laughs> Well, you know, I was thinking you, um, you don't, uh, I thought maybe for a second you might know, uh, have known about that city because it's a little interesting. It's a little south of Berlin. Actually, in okay. fact, Dave, it's a lovely hour and a half. May I interest you in a nice trip to the city of Wittenberg? Yeah. Just, like how just, far is it from Berlin? You know, it's a lovely hour and a half drive from Berlin along. Okay. Now, this is the big kicker, Dave, along a 111 kilometer road. Can you tell me how many and that a, is in miles? Oh, man. Uh, there's... <sighs> Like like around, I'd say 65. I'm, I'm guessing this is, I'm totally spitballing. 65 miles, 111 you kilometers? Know, 
you know, are we, we are we going there again? Are we yeah, doing that? <laughs> we've made this mistake in pre- previous episodes. I was really hoping to just set that up right for you. 111 kilometers for all of our friends that are listening in uh, countries that use kilometers. Kilometers. That isn't even the right way to say it, is it? It's kilometer. That's when you want to kill a meter. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, hey, 68.9 miles. I was a few off, so it was close. Wow, that's really good, Dave. Really impressive. Super oh, well, thanks, man. I appreciate yeah, it. I'm impressed. So we could say this because... Did you look it up, though? Like, Google it or I something? I looked it up after... I, I Googled it after, I, I guessed. Oh, okay. No, no, good. All right. I I guessed first. Okay, good, good. Okay, so now we could it, say... It that, wouldn't be fair otherwise. Right. That's what I was... That'd be okay. cheating. So he's in Wittenberg, right? And this, we could say, kind of becomes Luther's home. In 1512, while in Wittenberg, he's awarded his doctorate of theology... And eventually, now this is this is a pretty big mouthful right here. Eventually, he comes to serve on the Senate of the Theological Faculty of the University of Wittenberg. That's, oh, wow. It took me a while to kind of wrap my head around what that meant. But basically, he was kind of like a big deal. I think, do you yeah. think, you think he went around telling people that? Like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> people have heard of me. Yeah, people have heard of me. I'm, I'm actually, he had a den that smelled of leather-bound books. <laughs> He was like, I'm on the Senate of the Theological Faculty of the University of Wittenberg. So that seems like something you would come up with an acronym for if you know it was in the United States. Oh yeah, you're right. The S T F U W. There you okay, go. There you I go. Like it. It's Listen a long. Fuey. Okay. So now, what Martin Luther does not agree with. One thing we want to make clear. Now he's he's far enough along in his career, we could say, or not not really a career, but he, his belief of of teaching and education, especially in in regards to theology. Martin Luther did not agree with all of the teachings of the Catholic Church, but he did not agree with a deviation from the church. He wasn't trying to destroy the Catholic Church. He wasn't trying to burn this whole establishment down. It looks a lot like Martin Luther wanted reform, and he was far from the only person that wanted reform. From Wycliffe and the Lollards to Erasmus to Zwingli, Luther wanted the church to change its ways. He didn't want to destroy the church. But the big moment when he takes a stand for what he sees is right, really he kind of comes out and says no more, was in 1517. So, Dave, can you tell us what he does in 1517? Well, I think that's the thing that he was most known for. It was the the 95 Theses. Right. And uh, do you the- remember thesis? that story? Is it thesis or theses? He, I mean, he nailed it to the door of the right. church. Right, yeah. But I'm sure you probably have more details. Like, tell us about it. Like, what was on the 95 Theses? Why was he doing it? Why? Well, that. thank you, Dave. So, you know, a lot of people have heard of that 95 Theses. I think you can say it either way. But... You know, a lot of things led up to that movement, and we're going to talk to it. We're going to go into our second footnote of history pretty soon here, and, I, and I'd like um, I'd like you to help me with that. But prior footnote to— Footnote of history. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, we're getting there. So um, a lot of people have heard of that, that moment, Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. But before 1517, we're going to go back just a little bit and talk about a man named Johannes Tetzel. He's been traveling around selling these things called indulgences. You ever heard of those, Dave? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, basically the Catholic church was uh, an app with in-app purchases. Mm, Yes. I like that. Right. You know, like, you know, like when you get the free app and then like you have to pay for a bunch of, you know, it's like, Hey, you want to do this? You got to pay for this. It was like that. You're like, Hey, welcome to the Catholic church. It's like, Oh, you're going to do bad stuff. That's okay. As long as you pay for it. Wow. I have never, that is one of the most brilliant ways to illustrate uh, indulgences because I think, you know, someone today that's never heard that might not get it, but in-app purchases, I really... (laughs) I applaud you for that, Dave. That's I mean, a, it's excellent. like a ridiculous idea. It's like you shouldn't do bad things, but if you do, it's okay as long as you give me money. Yeah, and, and you basically nailed it on the head, Dave. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, he was selling a piece of paper called an indulgence that said if you had enough money, you could be forgiven for your sins. So there's a little marketing saying that got attributed to Tetzel, and it was translated, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Wow, that is... That's nice. Right? I mean, it's, it's got I mean, be... if they had, if you could print stuff on t-shirts, like I could see that on t-shirts back then. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's exactly right. You got it. So basically it's out of greed. This is just greedy priests trying to drum up money. And briefly, we're going to just talk about why the church was trying to drum up money. The Pope had pretty much bankrupted the Catholic church. Remember, this is Pope Leo X. He's building up St. Peter's Basilica. This is the time of the world famous art, like the Sistine Chapel. And it's artists like Michelangelo and Raphael. They're not cheap. 
you know, you think about artists, we're, we're talking about such a huge time in human history and just throw in a couple of their names, Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. That's why the Pope is trying to sell these indulgences to drum up money to pay for these, you know, just absolutely extravagant things. So, you know, the sale of indulgences, in a lot of ways, it's it, we could liken it to the straw that breaks the camel's back. The sale of these things wasn't the only thing wrong in the Catholic Church, but it became a big point that Luther used to highlight the corruption of the Catholic Church. So in Luther's famous 95 Theses, we could make a connection to quite a few of the points that he makes in those 95, we could call them 95 different points. Quite a few of them are connected back to these indulgences. But now we get into another huge historical event of the time, Dave. Now, can we go to our second footnote of history? Footnote of history. Sorry, that was my best Devin impress or imp impression. So now out of all the other things that we mentioned, as if just so many things weren't going on at this time to keep track of, Luther's protesting against the Catholic Church and the printing press has become more and more popular. Dave, what do we know about the printing press? Well, I know around this time you had Gutenberg, um, and he, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, he invented the, the uh, you know, invented the printing press, which is kind of true, but not true, because printing had been around for a while. Uh, like, a, you know, we mentioned in our History by the Century podcast, a lot of times, like, when was something invented? Always like 500 years earlier in China, which is true. But um, so printing existed. But what Gutenberg did is he invented movable type printing. So before, if you wanted to print something, you had to make one, you know, big printing plate. And, you know, it might be out of like a mold with molten metal. Uh, they also used lithography, which used mint stone printing, where you'd actually use acid to burn into a stone to make a printing plate. But it was very time consuming and you could only use it for a little bit. But with movable type, you know, you could quickly make printing plates, then you could quickly make another printing plate. So you could print a book with many pages rather quickly. So he invented the movable type printing press, which was as revolutionary back then as like something like television or the internet in our time period, because you could disseminate information to a lot of people very quickly at a greatly reduced cost. Wow, that is a really good explanation of the printing press and, and how it got going. And so, yeah, just like you said, Dave, Gutenberg, he was- But they did not have screen printing yet at that point. Oh, okay. So they couldn't, that's why they couldn't print the t-shirts that had that really interesting slogan. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, good. Good to know. Cool. So yeah. uh, maybe another episode, we'll talk about uh, the history of uh, t-shirt printing. But like you said, <laughs> Gutenberg, he was active in the 1400s. He actually died in 1468. So Martin Luther posted his 95 theses in 1517. So there's, there's quite a bit of time for the printing press to become popular, to be well-established. It's been around for a while. It was in a lot of different cities. Um, and it was, like you said, it's very, very useful for spreading information fast. And so, you know, a lot of people think about the Gutenberg Bible. That's probably one of the most famous, th you know, Bibles. People say, oh, the Gutenberg Bible. But these Shiloh, presses... fun fact, do you know how many intact, complete Gutenberg Bibles are in existence today? Like where you have it, page one to all the way to the end? I'm going to go with four. There's three. What? I think I think there's three. Oh man! I, I mean, guess... there's. But do you, do you know where one of them is? I went and saw one in the um, Yale University. There's another one. It's in Austin. It's at the uh, Harry what? Ransom Center. You and me yeah, both speak... have uh, Gutenberg Bibles right by us. Yeah, yeah. Yale's near you. Uh, I think I went to Yale. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't like, go. You I didn't. You... I didn't go to you let me go to Yale. Yes, you, yes, you visited yes. Yale. Yes, yes. Yeah, we have we have Yale here, but it's different. Like in I, Texas, Yale is what you do when you want to talk to somebody that's far away. Wow, awesome! I love it. Yeah, because when I was down there, yeah. I did notice I got a lot of Yales at me. Yeah, so. is that a, was that a good Texas impression? <laughs> when people yell at their kids. No, sorry. Oh, um, nice. Bad joke. So yeah. okay, uh, good good fact. Anyone that's listening can go back and check that. How many Gutenberg Bibles? Actually, I want kind of. Yeah, but it's, I, I mean, want you to. It's kind of. I want you to yeah. I, I want to, should I right Google now? that real quick? Yeah, you yeah but it's it. really cool though because like if you're in Austin, you can go for free without a ticket and see one of three uh, Gutenberg Bibles, which is I mean one of the it's a huge piece of history. Um, yeah, you know, but are you googling it right now? No, I wanted it's to. It's at the Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Harry I'll Ran do it while you're talking. You know what? Yeah, Maybe it's you at can... the Harry Ransom Center, which is a funny name. I mean, you I think of, I mean, 
it's like you, someone gets kidnapped you pay a ransom but if they're a hairy person you pay a hairy ransom but it's wow we re- this was this was a footnote to a footnote of history right there so the the printing press was really one of the biggest things that helped disseminate the information that martin luther wanted other people to know especially that 95 theses it ends up getting translated quite a few times so um into other languages so by by uh quite a few other countries are now starting to take notice and he's actually having people from all over the continent from europe flock to wittenberg to hear luther preach and and basically stand up for what he sees as corruption in the catholic church now it's generally said that the protestant reformation began when martin luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of all saints church october 31st 1517 over the next few years christians would really the christian world would get turned upside down and at the end of this episode i'll take a little time to explain one reason the protestant reformation is so important to understand what it really did to history, especially at this time. But we want to keep moving along. So by 1520, the Pope warned Martin Luther that he will be excommunicated if he doesn't recant the things that he said and printed. So he puts out one of those things called a pa- papal bull, papal bull. I always say that wrong, papal bull. Do you, do, you know what, do you know what a papal bull is? I get such a strange picture in my brain when I hear that term papal bull. Yeah. What, I mean, what is this picture? It's like an order. Oh, what the picture is? I'm sorry. I, I thought you were asking what a papal bull is, but I kind of get this like big old like uh, origami bowl. Yeah, like a paper bowl. Paper bowl. I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah anyways, it's not. Anyways, it's... Uh, oh, hey, just to, to, to backtrack a little bit. I, I Googled it. It was four. There's, so you were right. I was wrong. Yeah. There's four complete intact vellum copies of uh the gutenberg bible that exist one is in austin i think one of them is like in a private collection like in a vault in japan or something i read one time i don't know i don't know if that's right or wow yeah somebody has it and they're not like it's not like out on display you can go to the um whatever university i was at and you can walk up and see it it is pretty neat so you're right it's a very cool It's it's a huge book it's really impressive anyways but yes so you know um we're going back to the 1520s now. We're not talking about Papal, the Papal Bull. Papal Bull. Basically, uh, there's an order for Martin Luther to stop doing what he's doing. Knock it off, Martin Luther. You're, you're making us look bad over here, Martin. Martin, you think the Pope was like, oh, Leo was like, oh, Martin, would you just knock it off? You're causing us all <laughs> kinds of problems. If you'd just be quiet, Martin. Man. There's so many, there's so many bad things we could say right now. And we're just trying to be just super uh, conservative. I, I know. We're I'm trying. very, I, I, I have to say that I'm proud of you that we've, we've talked for 38 minutes about the Catholic church and about a priest without once quoting Nacho Libre. Like I have to say like, good job, Shiloh. I'm proud of you. No, I, you know, I just want to give this the proper respect. I feel like it's, uh, you and me talked about it beforehand. There's a lot of different things going on here and you're not trying, we're just basically telling history. We're not trying to say one thing or the other as far as an opinion we just want to tell the history so in 1520 there's there's the order from the pope he wants you'll excommunicate martin luther if he doesn't recant the things he said and printed we talked about that in 1521 now we get to the famous diet of worms and then we're not go ahead you got any jokes for me well i well not a joke but just like what is a diet because like i mean now we talk about diet is something you eat like people talk about a plants a right. plant-based diet or something like that but what is a diet back then like and yeah. why is it called the diet of worms? You know, it's such a good question, Dave. And like from paper bowls to diets of worms, it's kind of a lot of terms in there. But if you're listening to this podcast and this is stuff that interests you, but you don't have a lot of experience reading of it, you know, you're in good company. Me and Dave are kind of in the same boat. So we're always looking these things up. Pa- papal bowl, uh, like I said, an order from the Pope. But the diet, we could say it's more like the diet of worms. Worms. I'm not going to say it right in German, but yeah. you know, of course. But um, basically, that word when we say it in English, diet, we're we're saying it not correctly. But when we say that, we're talking about an assembly, a gathering okay. of people. So when we say the diet of worms, we're talking about an assembly, a gathering of people in the city of worms, worms, worms. <laughs> gotcha. I need somebody to help me with my German. So uh, the Holy Roman Empire or Holy Roman Emperor Charles V meets Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms at this city in an assembly and tries to get Luther to recant his teachings under this order of the Pope. 
And in, in a dramatic display of defiance, Martin Luther refuses to do so. So we can see a journey of a man from a young boy who saw the futility of trying to climb up a social ladder, a man who saw corruption from, from leaders that said they were there to protect people. Uh, Luther was a man that was confident in what he believed, a man who wanted to do what was right according to what he believed. So we can imagine this man saying the last words of his defense before the Holy Roman Emperor. He says, I am bound by scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. Amen. So this man was confident. He believed in what he was saying. So this defiant act produces what is then called the edict of worms. So you got a lot of, there's so many things you could say right now, but there's a lot of a lot of worm jokes I kind of feel like making, but this was the edict of worms. And if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around that, it was basically a mandate, a command that went out. King Charles V, he says, Martin Luther's an outlaw. He is now an outlaw. He's now an enemy of not just the Catholic Church, but the Holy Roman Empire. So now we come to the point in our story when Martin Luther is so-called kidnapped, or better, better said, he's secretly abducted and taken uh, to a castle to be protected. And that's where we, we started our story, under the title of Junker George. Uh, Martin Luther was a man in hiding. He was a man upset at the corruption he saw. Around this time, Martin Luther realized the Catholic Church can't be reformed. He supports an all-out separation for those who want to see Christianity follow what the Bible says. And so we could sum up a few of Martin Luther's specific points of contention with the church as salvation, is not earned by good deeds, but it's received as a free gift of God. So that's a big point for Martin Luther. It's not earned. So what he's saying here is not just by good deeds. We're not saying that good deeds are important, but you can't earn or buy salvation as in an indulgence. We're going back to those indulgences. You couldn't buy salvation. So that was a big point of contention. Another one was that he challenged the authority of the Pope. The Pope was seen as an infallible agent by Catholics of the time, uh, the one that God used to have the final say in beliefs. Martin Luther said the ultimate authority comes from the Bible. So basically, the Pope could be challenged if he said something wrong. So Martin Luther also chose to marry, even though this was strictly forbidden by the Catholic Church. He wanted to get married, so he got married. Now, earlier on, we mentioned his translation of the Greek scriptures of the Bible into German while he was at the Wartburg Castle. And this had a huge impact on the church and German culture. It helped develop a standard version of the German language. His German Bible influenced later uh, translations of the Bible that were even used by Tyndale. So a little bit later, his version gets used as, uh, as, a, helpful, as a helpful aid in the translation of the Tyndale Bible. And I was going to say, too, that's also true in English. Like the very popular King James Version mm -hmm. was very influential on the English language, just exactly, because yeah. if you had, you know, enough money, I mean, because printing, although it had become cheaper and more available, it was still very expensive. So if you had the money to own one book, it was probably going to be the Bible. Right. And so if that's what you're reading, it's going to influence the way you speak. Yeah. And you nailed it, Dave. That is exactly right. The Bible has been such an important influence on Western language. Uh, you want you want a little fun little fact as I was doing research on um, the development... Eh of the English language. Yeah, not, not really. That's, I mean, just, that's, yeah. Oh yeah, man. Let's fun fact. Let's hear it. <laughs> you're so funny. You're like, you're giving me that face like shallow. No more fun facts. Can you give me a sound effect for fun facts? Fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you are listening to this and you're like, wow, the, the, you know, the Bible in English is the most widely distributed book in the English language or in any language for that matter of the whole world. Um, well, you know what the second most distributed book in the English language is? Now, this might be uh, a little figure. I thought it was, I don't know if it's in English, but I thought it was uh, Chairman Mao's uh, book. Is that incorrect? But that, I think that's in Chinese, though. Yeah, that might be in um, uh, in Chinese, yeah. Um, now I can't remember the name. Pilgrim's Pride? Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, really? Am I saying it wrong? I, I forget the name of it now. Is it Pilgrim's Progress? I'm, I'm, I, I'm drawing I, a blank. I, I don't know. That's a good okay. question. Really? That's Anyways. number two? Uh, it was wow. for a long It was for a long time. It was written by a, um, okay. a Puritan. I think is um, uh, John 
Bunyan. Bunyan. Anyways, okay. My English English literature is getting a little crazy over here. Okay. So, as we've seen, there's a lot to note in the story of Martin Luther. And so, from this point on, Martin Luther goes into some deep theological teachings that also end up contradicting what was written in the Bible. So, he kind of ends up falling into a little bit of a trap here. And one of the things that many people don't know about Martin Luther is he spoke very negatively about the Jewish people. And just looking back on a man that taught love and repentance, he was pretty hard and unforgiving on the Jewish community. Another interesting thought of Luther was that the rise of the Ottoman Empire was actually foretold in the Bible. Uh, He believed that the Ottoman Empire was being used by God as as a punishment against Christianity. Also, um, he had beliefs. He actually had a, a work, just as a point of reference, I believe it's what it was titled um, Of War on the Turk, I believe is the name of the book that he, or the work that he wrote. But he basically had a lot of different varying opinions and political views on the Ottoman Empire, as used as he used the name the Turks. So uh, this is just a few of the lesser known details. Actually, one other point I want to mention too was that Martin Luther went so far as to help in support the translating of the Quran. So that's the holy book of Islam. So very interesting later um, life he had. But it's a few of the lesser known details, and we only mention it to highlight the fact that despite Luther's best intentions to dedicate himself to the study of the Bible, he got embroiled in political and social affairs. We didn't mention anything about the um, Peasants' Revolt in Germany. We're not even going to talk about it, but it's super interesting if you have time and you want to research more. Luther and the Peasants' Revolt, it became a huge political affair. Uh, It's a man who wanted to take a stand for what was right, but in the end, Luther was was faced with the same facts that we all face, that humans really can't solve all the problems that stare right back at us. And one last point I wanted to mention was the importance of the Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther is credited with starting. Anything anything you wanted to add, Dave? No, I was just... told me a few things that I didn't know that was fascinating. Like, I did not know that he supported the translation of the Quran into English. Or not English, into, uh, uh, I guess it would have been German. Well, you know, uh, I believe, I think it started first as Latin. It was going into Latin okay. first. But the big thing was, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent. Like I said, we're just kind of mentioning the facts. Anyone that wants to read more into it, he had reasons for it. He wanted to educate um, Christians about what Islam was. He did figure at one point the the Ottoman Empire was conquering so much that a lot of Christians would end up living in under the control of the Ottoman Empire and that they were going to get converted to Islam because that's what happened in the modern country of of Turkey, which before was, we know, the the, um, Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. A lot of Christians there were now under the the, um, dominion of the Ottoman Empire. So basically he was kind of looking for a way to educate them. That's one of the reasons why he may have supported that. But it it gets real interesting in there. And and without going into too many details, it's more for something for someone else to explore and learn about. But but the the fact of the matter is is he did support that translation. But going back to his is this big thing that people remember him for starting the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation is one of the pivotal moments in Western history. I just want to mention one reason why. Until the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church held a tight hold on many parts of the world. So those under the control of the Catholic Church, almost no part of their life was really theirs. People were oppressed and they were controlled. They were lied to and downtrodden. We could say that the Protestant Reformation took control away from the Catholic Church little by little. And it wasn't overnight. It wasn't instant. But it started to break the yoke of an oppressive organization. Martin Luther is seen as a hero to some and a villain to others. Whatever personal opinion anyone has of Martin Luther, he was a major figure in world history. That brief time that Martin Luther hid in Wartburg Castle as Junker George was a time when he was just an unknown. He wasn't a hero or a villain. Reportedly, he snuck into the local town to hear what people thought of the world issues. But deep down, that was the real man. He was a man like everyone else, just wondering what the future holds. Well, Dave. Wow, very nice, Shiloh. So, who in the world are you talking about? Junker George. (laughs) Martin Luther, the Junker George. That was a fun one, Dave. Thanks for letting me do that. I know that um, 
I know I was tiptoeing into some sensitive stuff in there and we, we did a good job of just being careful, being proper. And we I can proudly say that we said absolutely nothing offensive. I'm pretty sure, yeah, we, we kept it all straightforward, yeah. tried to tell but, just the facts for the most part. Um, but now maybe I figured... Bit. Maybe a little I bit, f- like 2%. Yeah, there was a little, a little bit, but I figured after all that, we should finish with just some random thing that I thought was funny. The other day I was reading an article, um, that, uh, the state of Idaho in the United States had a beaver infestation problem. So sure enough, what do you do when you have a beaver infestation? Let me just preface this. I'm going to go to a footnote, our third footnote of history. Have you ever seen the video of the Oregonians blowing up the whale on the beach with dynamite? I have an eight-year-old son, so yes. <laughs> okay, you've seen it. Okay, awesome. Do you you know how that conversation goes with the guys? They're like, "Well, how do we get rid of this whale?" I don't know. Uh, we can't and someone's just... like, "Maybe we should just blow it up." They're like, "Uh, okay." <laughs> yeah. Somebody in that planning thing was kind of like planning party in that diet of planning. Yes. The diet of Oregon of uh, Coos Bay or wherever they blew that thing up. Anyways, so Idaho. The... Idaho was like saying, hey, we can't be outdone. Oregon just blew up a whale on the beach and sent whale parts all over the town. We got to come up with a good idea, too. All right. That was and an so, amazing video, too. Like there was parts that completely crushed cars. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was good. Yeah. Oh, thankfully, no one was hurt. Anyways, so. Except for Idaho. Whale. Yeah. Idaho was like, we, we can't let these Oregonians just blow up a whale. They got ocean. They got stuff we can't do. And so the Idaho what do you call it people from idaho idahonians idahonians potatoes we don't, call potatoes. we don't know anybody from idaho like i know people from most places but not idaho yeah um so people from idaho they were like what could we do and some guy was like hey we got all these beavers what if we put parachutes on them and drop them out of planes and they what? were like yeah yeah let's do let's do parachuting beavers that's a great idea so we're just gonna leave it at that if you didn't like the martin luther episode that's fine. You stayed with us. Now you get a, a kind of a cool bonus thing. Go look up Idaho parachuting beavers. I kid you not. It's a real thing. Wait, because they were trying to get rid of the beavers or add more beavers. I'm just gonna I'm gonna let it I'm gonna let it you find out, Dave. I'm gonna leave it up wow. to the audience. So on that note, Dave, is this, this is has this been. Gonna, wait, is this gonna? Yeah. This oh, has yeah. been. Well, welcome. Uh, another episode of, of Who in Who? the World. Who?